Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here again. Another China History Podcast episode for you. Thanks for coming back for part two. We're going to look at the third emperor of the Ming Dynasty today. If you recall in last episode, the founder of the Ming Dynasty carelessly created a succession crisis when he passed away in 1398. His son, the crown prince, died in 1392. And then rather than pick the next eldest son, Di. The Hongwu Emperor selected the eldest son of the deceased crown prince. And once the Hongwu Emperor passes from the scene, this grandson took over as the new emperor. The eldest living son of the deceased Hongwu Emperor, Zhu Di, he was none too pleased with this decision. And as we will see, he ends up usurping the throne after a four-year civil war. So last episode, we looked at the Ming founder, Zhu Yuanzhang, the Hongwu Emperor. And this time, we look at his son, Zhu Di, who reigned for a good 22 years, from 1402 to 1424. He's known as both the Yongle Emperor and also as the Chengzu Emperor, or Ming Chengzu. We'll refer to him in this episode as the Yongle Emperor. It's quite a story, these few years, when the grandson, now reigning as the Jianwen Emperor, played this deadly game with his uncle, Zhu Di. The Jianwen Emperor wasn't bad or anything. It's said that the open rift between the two all started when Prince Zhu Di came to Nanjing to pay his respects to his recently deceased father, the Hongwu Emperor. He came with a whole armed entourage that the Emperor's people rightly saw as potentially threatening. After all, it was no secret that Handing off the succession like he did, the Hongwu Emperor had created this rift between the grandson, the Jianwen Emperor, and his son, the Prince of Yen, Zhu Di. Both the grandson, now reigning as Emperor Jianwen, and the son, Zhu Di, they had legitimate claims. So when Zhu Di showed up at the palace with all his muscle in tow, the Jianwen Emperor threw down the gauntlet and the Emperor had his guards bar their entry. In fact, Zhu Di was even prohibited from even visiting his father's tomb. So now there was all this open enmity that existed between these two. The Jianwen Emperor then began to take political measures to diminish the Prince of Yen, Zhu Di. And one of the first things he did to diminish his competition was to abolish all these princedoms that were led by the many sons of the deceased emperor. And this move undermined Zhu Di the Prince of Yen. Yen was the area around Beijing where Zhu Di had his power base. The Jianwen Emperor's idea was to get rid of the princes and fill the spots with his loyal generals. Eh, fair enough, he wasn't the first ruler to use this strategy. So Zhu Di was basically outgunned and outmanned, and he retreated with his political allies to regroup. And after he had assembled enough generals, soldiers, and loyal supporters he went on to make his move. And then in January 1402, he marched on Nanjing, and to make a long story short, he took the capital. 
the imperial palace went down in flames along with the Jianwen emperor. Or did it? They never found his body or that of his empress who perished together with him. So our hero, Zhu Di, 42 years old, he seized the throne after finally getting the chance to pay his respects before his father's tomb. He declared himself emperor and his Yongle era began. He had a lot of mopping up to do. China was not in very good shape. Remember, the last years of the Hongwu era saw all kinds of rebellion and unrest. And the Jianwen emperor, for his four years on the throne, well, he was too busy sparring with his uncle, Zhu Di, so he couldn't dedicate the time and resources to get the Ming house in order. The Yongle emperor, he ended up going way above and beyond the call of duty to root out all Jianwen emperor loyalists. And there were quite a few. Like Captain Quig and his strawberries, and Ahab and Moby Dick, the Yongle Emperor saw a Jianwen Emperor supporter behind every bush and stopped at nothing to finish them off to the last person. One extreme case that really put the Yongle Emperor's rage on full display concerned the Jianwen Emperor loyalist Fang Xiaoru. He had served as the royal tutor to the Jianwen Emperor. Fang Xiaoru refused to cooperate with the Yongle Emperor from the get-go. In his eyes, the Yongle Emperor was a usurper. Nonetheless, being one of the top-ranked Confucian scholars of his day, he was called upon by the Emperor to write a kind of inaugural address for his coronation, or for some ceremony. So Fang Xiaoru refused, and for an insult of this magnitude to a guy like Yongle, refusing in the name of his loyalty to the Jianwen Emperor to disobey the new Emperor's command to write the address, oh, he was given the ultimate penalty an Emperor could mete out. Yeah, he was given the Julian Jiozu. This means the continuous elimination of nine tribes. This punishment was reserved for the most heinous of crimes on a national scale. Treason would be an example. It involved the execution of the entire family of an individual going back however many generations. The relatives were categorized into nine groups. In the old Chinese system, there were nine kinds of family guanxi or relationships. Patrilineally, this involved the execution of everyone in the accused family from the great-great-grandfather all the way down the line to the great-great-grandchildren. So when Feng Xiaoru was given this penalty, not only was he executed, and we'll get to that in a second, others who went down with him included his living parents, grandparents, his children, and all his grandchildren as well. They were included in the penalty. Whatever siblings he had, they had to pay the ultimate price for their brother's treason. Whatever uncles he had, as well as their spouses, they too got caught up in this net. In a final act of defiance, when the emperor handed down the sentence that Feng Xiaoru suffer this harsh penalty involving the nine exterminations, as it was called, he spat back at the emperor, This translates to, Don't stop at nine. Why not ten generations? So for this, Feng Xiaoru, loyal to his fallen Jianwen emperor to the last, was given the good old Yao Zhan, or severing the body in half at the waist. And as the legend of Feng Xiaoru goes, as he lay dying, he took his finger 
and dipped it in his own blood and wrote the 16-stroke character Tsuan on the ground. That's the character for the word usurper. Ouch. Take that, Yongle Emperor. Well, for good measure, the emperor took Fang to his word about why not wipe out an additional generation, an additional tenth, and rather than exterminate more of his family, the emperor took him to his word and he went after all his students, colleagues, and friends instead. It said a total of 873 people were executed in toto for Feng Xiaoru's act of defiance to the Yongle Emperor. The Yongle Emperor, he did a little revision to the history of the time. He went and had all references to the Jianwen Emperor taken out of the record and destroyed. All official trace of his four years on the throne were sanitized as if this whole thing never happened. And to account for those four years when the Yongle Emperor did not reign, the reign of the deceased Hongwu Emperor, his father, was increased by four years so that on paper at least, the Yongle era was the successor to the Hongwu era. And so things began for this emperor with this little instance of less majesty. The third Ming Emperor, well, the second if you asked him, he reigned for 22 years, from 1402 to 1424. He's known for his expansionist activity, sponsoring the voyages of Admiral Zheng He and his five campaigns against the Mongols that he led personally, and for being a strong, hands-on monarch who exuded strength and confidence. And his obsessions included expansion into Mongolia, Manchuria, and southward into Vietnam, as well as a lusting for prestige amongst his Asian neighbors, particularly those from Southeast Asia and all the coastal kingdoms that rimmed the Indian Ocean. He instituted a very extravagant tributary system, and in fact, Zheng He's voyages and this whole passion the emperor had for this tributary system were both interrelated. He moved the imperial capital from his father's beloved Nanjing to the site of the former Yuan Dynasty capital of Dadu, which had been renamed Beiping, and now the Yongle Emperor renamed this city Beijing, meaning northern capital. He had a lot of reconstruction to do, and the Yongle Emperor immediately set about creating a dream team of scholars of the Confucian tradition, of course. His father hadn't left things in the best state, and the four-year civil war didn't help. If there was one thing you could say about this emperor... He really took the words carpe diem to heart. Not a minute of his day was ever wasted. He was a tireless ruler, administrator, and as I said, he led armies into battle as emperor. As a builder of public works, Yongle earned his stripes. He carried out massive reconstruction to the severely degraded Grand Canal. Remember, the Grand Canal which ran from Beijing south to Hangzhou, was built during the Sui dynasty, during the reign of the father-son emperors Wen Di and Yang Di. It had been 800 years since it was completed in 609, so it was probably in need of some heavy-duty maintenance. The Yongle emperor also called for the construction of a building known as the Porcelain Tower or Porcelain Pagoda of Nanjing, 267 feet high and 97 feet in diameter. 
It was a nine-story pagoda made from porcelain bricks with intricate facings of green, yellow, brown, and white ceramic tiles. It was decorated from top to bottom with Buddhist images. During the day, the sun shone off the glazed bricks, and at night, 140 lanterns were hung that beautifully illuminated the building. In its time, it was admired by visitors to the capital and became sort of an iconic site in China. However, in the 1800s, it was struck by lightning that blew off the top three floors, and later, during the Taiping Rebellion, which we'll be hearing about when we cover the next dynasty in China, well, first the Taiping rebels destroyed all the Buddhist images, and then they destroyed the interior spiral staircase with its 184 steps. And they did this to ensure the Qing government army didn't use the tower as an observation post. By 1856, it was destroyed, and what had made some lists of the seven medieval wonders of the world was gone for good. One more trophy in the Yongle Emperor's Hall of Fame would be the Forbidden City. He was the one who championed the whole idea of creating an all-inclusive city within a city where the emperor and his family could live, work, and play, and the entire administration of the Ming Empire could be centrally managed. And one of his earliest achievements was the Yongle Encyclopedia. This was written between 1403 and 1408. Remember, he had become emperor in 1402. So this Yongle Dian, when it was written, was the largest and most comprehensive of its kind. Now, 1408, mind you, over in Europe, the Italian Renaissance was well underway, but it's only the time of Cosimo de' Medici and all the great stuff that happened under Piero and Lorenzo de' Medici was still decades away. So this great work, the Yongle Encyclopedia, compiled by 2,000 scholars, contained over 8,000 works going back to Bronze Age China. There were just under 23,000 scrolls, each scroll being one chapter. So the total volumes of the encyclopedia was 11,095. Written by hand on these scrolls was a grand total of 370 million Chinese characters. The topics were what you might generally expect in an encyclopedia. Of course, with the internet, these great encyclopedic works are somewhat obsolete. But if you could remember the days before the internet, before then, a set of encyclopedias was the database and the search engine was your hands and your brain. So this Yongle Encyclopedia was like a mini library of Alexandria all in one single work. Unfortunately, less than 4% of the encyclopedia survives to this day, a mere 400 volumes out of 11,095. Something this massive couldn't be block printed back then, so there was only one original, and that was it. Nothing else existed. Supposedly, there was a second one written, but no solid evidence on that. A third copy was commissioned after the only surviving copy narrowly missed getting destroyed in a palace fire during the reign of the Jiajing Emperor. By the time of the late 19th century, only 800 volumes remained, and of that, half was destroyed during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. You can go to the National Library of China, and there you can see what remains of the Yongle Encyclopedia. Bits and pieces of it are also scattered around the world in various 
private collections and museums, but more than half of what remains you could see in the National Library in Beijing. He equally supported all three of the great religions of China, Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. He was also a supporter of Islam, and there were two mosques built in China, in Nanjing and Xi'an, that still stand to this day. In 1403, the Yongle Emperor announced he was going to send a fleet of ships to the countries of the Western Ocean. And to accomplish such a task on the scale to match the Yongle Emperor's ego, a massive shipbuilding operation was set up on the Qinhuai River, where it meets the Yangtze at Nanjing. And this became the shipbuilding center of China. And China, at least during the time of this emperor, sailed the most magnificent fleet in the world. Let's look at the man that the emperor put in charge of this project, which was massively expensive. Its whole raison d'etre was to blow the people away who were in China's orbit. And this basically included the peoples of Southeast Asia, of Persia, the Middle East, and Central Asia, as well as the civilizations of India and the East Coast of Africa. The Yongle Emperor wanted to bring the might, the cultural superiority, and everything that was great about China to all these far-flung places. The desired outcome for every mission was to get these kingdoms, states, or whatever, to agree to pay tribute to the Ming Emperor. And they would become like vassal states, and participate in this annual tribute system where they would prostrate themselves before the Ming emperor once a year, bring gifts, and then be showered with many, many more gifts than what they themselves had presented. This was all part of the ritual. Of course, China, being the big brother in these relationships, had to shower these tribute-bearing missions with much more than what they would offer to the emperor. And of course, China, being the big brother in these relationships, had to shower these tribute-bearing missions with much more than what they would offer to the emperor. Today's One Belt, One Road mega project, well, the road aspect of it, was partially inspired by these 15th century voyages called for by the Yongle Emperor. So anyway, I already did a three-part series on Zheng He, but let's run quickly through his role in the seven voyages. Zheng He was born Ma He in 1371. Now, if you recall from last episode, he was a young boy who was captured in Yunnan when the Hongwu Emperor was battling to bring the last remnants of China down in the southwest into the Ming Dynasty fold. Yunnan was one of the last places to be brought back into China. And in the fight, young Ma He was captured and brought back to the capital. He was a Muslim of Persian ancestry. Upon his capture, he was made a eunuch and ended up serving the Ming Emperor Yongle. Ma He's relationship as a trusted ally of the emperor was solidified after he helped put down remnants of the defeated Jianwen Emperor. And it was the Yongle Emperor who gave him the name of Zheng He. In total, there were seven voyages, six of them ordered by the Yongle Emperor and a seventh ordered by the Xuande Emperor, a successor to Yongle who passed in 1424. Actually, well, there was the brief reign of the Hongxi Emperor who put an end to the voyages, but he only lasted a year, and when the Xuande Emperor took over, he called for a seventh and final voyage, and it was during this voyage that Zheng He died and was buried at sea. 
I encourage you to go check out the three-part series on Zheng He's voyages. I also include a section on Gavin Menzies' books. If you remember him, his book, 1421, The Year That China Discovered the World, it was uh, quite a sensation when it came out. He claimed that Zheng He's fleet's visit to the New World predated that of Columbus in 1492. And this was one controversial book, and though it did well as far as uh, book sales went, it has been savaged by China historians as a work of pure fiction. But it was the Yongle Emperor who is credited with being the driving force behind these great voyages. Six of the voyages occurred between 1405 and 1421, and the last one, as I said, under Xuande in 1431. Now, not only was this a mission to fly the flag and show everyone how great and mighty China was, it also served to establish peaceful relations with its neighbors through the auspices of these tribute missions. And it said, a sidebar to these voyages, was also to maintain a manhunt for the Jianwen emperor, who was probably killed in the fire that burned down the palace, but as I said, his body was never found, and the Yongle emperor always had this nagging obsession that maybe he was still alive and perhaps living in exile, gathering his strength to come back and claim the throne. So besides wowing the peoples of Southeast Asia, India, and Africa, Zheng He was told that during these voyages, he should keep his eyes open for any trace of the possibly escaped Jianwen Emperor. The first voyage took Admiral Zheng He's fleet to Vietnam and then on to Java, Malaysia, the Maldives, and the east coast of India from Calcutta down to the east coast in Kerala State and to Sri Lanka. And this area was known as the Western Ocean. Today, we know it as the Indian Ocean. The second and third voyages were about the same as far as what ports were called at. On the fourth, fifth, and sixth voyages, the fleet went as far as Aden and the Straits of Hormuz, Yemen, Somalia, Kenya, and other East African cities on the Swahili coast. And since the records for these last two voyages were purposely destroyed, it's unknown whether the legends are true that Zheng He's fleet went as far as Iran. In all, more than 30 different kingdoms were visited. He sailed in a variety of different ships. Most legendary and spectacular of these vessels were the so-called treasure ships, or Baochuan. None survive today, and there's no solid, irrefutable evidence of their size and construction. What has come down to us are descriptions of them, and from what we know at least, these ships were as big as 450 feet long and 180 feet wide. This would make them the largest ships by far of their time, more than twice as long as the largest 16th century European ships. Zheng He's massive treasure ships had nine masts and four decks that could hold 500 passengers or crew with plenty of space to hold cargo. Of the 300 ships in Zheng He's fleet, 62 of them were categorized as these treasure ships. Again, we have no solid evidence of their massive sizes, but even if we take it as a given that there is some degree of exaggeration, these were still the largest vessel sailing the seas in the 15th century. There's plenty of controversy about the size and seaworthiness of such vessels, but by any account, they were massive and awe-inspiring. 
The first six voyages were almost continuous, beginning from 1405. In other words, as soon as Zheng He returned, well, he didn't stay long and was off again for another voyage. However, after the sixth voyage ended in 1422, there was a long time in between the sixth and seventh voyage. Eight years, in fact, passed before Zheng He took his final adventure to the Western Ocean. Like the space programs of today, there were enthusiastic supporters and enthusiastic detractors of this whole idea of all these extravagant voyages to China's neighbors near and far. The more conservative Confucianists were first among the groups who were dead set against all these voyages with all their potential unintended consequences and new ideas they might bring back. Plus, they were aghast at the cost. Indeed, these voyages were extravagant and wasteful in a way. Other than all this amazing prestige China received from these kingdoms who came in contact with these fleets, it didn't lead to any significant income for China, and it never led to any territorial expansion, though that was never the intention of the Seven Voyages. Mostly, it was all about the Yongle Emperor spreading the word about China, and no doubt feeling some sort of satisfaction in receiving all these envoys from all these countries to China's west, seeing them grovel and bow before him, and to be presented with so many strange, valuable, and exotic gifts and scientific curiosities from representatives of kings from all these distant places. It sure affirmed the Chinese concept of universal subordination under heaven's sun. No doubt a good deal of geographic data was accumulated over the course of the journeys. There's a stele, you know, one of these stone slabs with some inscription written on them, that was erected in the city of Fuzhou in Fujian province that says of Zheng He that he was to, quote, to go to the foreigners' countries and confer presence upon them, so as to transform them by displaying our power while treating distant peoples with kindness, end quote. Again, in our day, this idea is also used as inspiration for China's 21st century maritime Silk Road. And then once Yongle passes, this itch to carry on these costly and awe-inspiring expeditions was abruptly halted. The treasure ships all sat in port in China and simply rotted away over time. And as far as the Jianwen Emperor, who may have escaped the talons of the Yongle Emperor, there was never any trace of him found anywhere. So these voyages, they came to a crashing end in 1433. There were never again any follow-up voyages made. All records regarding the seven voyages were purposely destroyed under orders from the war ministry. And it wasn't until 1567 that these severely restrictive trade laws were repealed. And that was it. China closed the door right at the very moment in history when the age of exploration was about to take off. And as China lay dormant and looking inward, England, Holland, Portugal, Spain, France, they all took to the seas to build empires on multiple continents, the consequences of which, good and bad, we're all living with today. One of the legacies of these voyages was that all along the routes navigated by these vessels, Chinese settlements began to establish themselves throughout Southeast Asia, particularly in Malaysia and Indonesia. And today, 
millions of Huachiao, or overseas Chinese, live in these settlements created five, six hundred years ago. There's one other interesting thing about the reign of the Yongle Emperor, and this was his attempts to invade, conquer, and hold on to Vietnam. While the Yongle Emperor was busy doing all these other big projects, fighting the Mongols, rebuilding the country's infrastructure, improving the administration, sending Zheng He out on these voyages, he also spent pretty much his entire reign dealing with Vietnam. There was a diplomatic incident that happened between Annam and China, and the Yongle Emperor sent 215,000 troops to invade. In 1407, the Ming were victorious, and Annam was annexed to China and renamed Jiaozhi province. But not for long. After 13 years of guerrilla warfare, fighting in the jungles and mountains, the Vietnamese finally wore the Ming troops out, who had such a difficult time in this wretched, tropical climate. So by the year 1427, during the reign of the Xuanda Emperor, the Ming were finally and very soundly defeated. And that was the end of their Vietnamese adventure. If you'd like to hear more about this, may I humbly suggest the six-part series I did on the history of China-Vietnam relations. That was uh, CHP episodes 197 to 202. The Yongle Emperor, he died in what's today Inner Mongolia and was brought back to Beijing, where he had just moved to three years earlier after spending ten years building this new capital. So next time you see a picture of the Forbidden City, think of this Emperor Yongle. And next time you're in Beijing, you can actually visit his tomb, the Changling, which is the oldest and largest of the 13 Ming tombs just north of Beijing. I visited them in 1980, and along with the Great Wall, these 13 Ming tombs, the Shirsanling, are one of the top tourist attractions when you're in Beijing. So we're going to stop here with the death of this emperor and pick up next week with the final two centuries of the Ming Dynasty. As usual, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from lovely Los Angeles, California, wishing everyone around the world my very best. We'll see you next time, I hope, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.